Hey guys, and welcome to Hunt Land, where we discuss hunting, wildlife, and habitat management, and dynamics of land ownership. I'm Joe Baia, here with Clint Flowers. And Clint, we got a little bit of everything today, talking about dynamics of land ownership. In the southeast, timber prices are something that folks always need to be paying attention to. We're going to be talking with J.R. Havard a little bit. Oh, actually, right up first thing in the show, we're going to get a little update on timber prices in his area, find out if it's a good time to be cutting or not. And then a little later in the show, we're going to be talking to Byron South with Convergent Hunting Solutions, talking a little bit more about that habitat wildlife management, you know, how we can get rid of some coyotes. Well, deer season is opened up. Have y'all had a good start to things over there at your place? Yeah, we've seen a lot of good numbers. My dad saw a pretty good buck that, uh, was was better than he thought it was but didn't realize it until too late so he's still out there and lots of acorns out there and still falling so you know i think um we've really seen a lot of activity still in the woods as opposed to the food plots but you know overall it's been a been a great season so far that's what i was going to ask you you know you mentioned seeing more activity in the woods and that's not uncommon for the early season while you still got this mass crop on the ground, but, uh, your food plots, how are they doing? You, are y'all getting, um, you know, good growth or are they, what's going on with those? Yeah, so far so good. We, we kind of mix it up this year. We, uh, did, uh, wheat, oats, clover and some, and then, uh, wheat and rape and some, and, and on the more sandier plots, and we're just kind of keep an eye on it, experimenting a little bit this year, but, you know, we got in there, you know, perfect timing rain wise. So, uh, you know, we'll be good either way, but we just decided to switch it up and see how things look this year. Yeah. I, I was, uh, out at my place last weekend and, you know, I, I tried some, I was talking, we talked with Daniel Bumgarner earlier this year with wildlife management solutions. He put me on to uh, one of their products called Tritic Oat. And I've been real happy with the the germination out of that and, and good growth. I did come back about a, a week ago and hit it with some of the Alabama liquid fertilizer and I was really impressed with that. I mean, that stuff jumped a lot in just a few days from that foliar uh, fertilizer application. I just did a lot of my little bow plots with a backpack sprayer. I went in the middle of the day and I mean, it didn't take me very long at all to cover my whole place and, and just, you know, carried around a uh, some water in the back of my truck and, and filled up my backpack sprayer and walked through and actually got to do a little scouting while I was at it. Found a couple of good spots for, uh, for some bow stands and, and I was able to fertilize some of the native vegetation too, which is going to be interesting. I made a point to mark some of the, some of the different sweet briar and things like that, that I fertilized to see if, if it made a difference with how hard they would browse that, that native, verta- uh, native vegetation. So I'm really looking forward to come back and seeing how those deer hit that, I was just really impressed. I couldn't believe how much it jumped in just just really less than a week. Pretty impressive stuff. But man, one of the things that we want to see grow is our trees. And let's go talk to JR, see what the deal is with the timber prices right now. And uh, if it's a good time to cut or not. John Ross Haver. John Ross, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, it's great to, have, great to be back on, Joe. JR, uh we want to talk with you today and learn a little bit about the, the timber market and thought we'd get an update from you and see what uh, things are doing up there for you in West Central Alabama. All right. Well, uh, that's certainly something we can talk about. We Normally, this time of year, we're, we're starting to um, execute plans on getting, getting timber sales lined up for the winter because this is typically our peak, uh, peak pricing season, but there's a little bit, a little bit of a different ball game this year with uh, the uh, IP mill at Selma is planning an extended shutdown. So they're, they've been on quota 
uh, already because of the hot, dry summer slash fall that we've had so far. And they're planning to shut down, so they're not really uh, they're not really stacking wood up like they normally would at this time of year. And when the when they shut down, it'll be right at the time of year where they're usually throwing out big money for for stuff because because of conditions they're having a hard time filling the mill up. But if they're going to be shut down, they won't be doing that. So we probably will not be seeing crazy high pulpwood prices in that part of the world this year like we might normally. Uh, but on the flip side of that, we might see some interesting things happen if it gets really wet so as far as higher products go because uh, people are kind of trying not to cut their pulp wood. They may they may have opportunities to cut some bigger stuff and uh, and really get paid for it. JR, you're talking about saw timber and, and chip and saw and some, some interesting things may be happening if we have another wet winter. Give me a quick rundown real quick for folks maybe new to the uh, – maybe new to land ownership and, and not familiar with the different classes. What, what are your typical classes there for timber in your area? Sure. So, um, you know, as, as far as pine products go, your smallest and worst quality stuff is, is pulpwood, obviously. And then from, from pulpwood, you have bigger and better classes beyond that. And most people think in terms of pulpwood, chip and saw, and saw timber. Chip and saw is kind of a, an in-between product where they can cut one or two um, boards out of a tree or a log, and then the rest of it gets uh, thrown into the chipper, and it goes for pulpwood. Uh, saw timber is is more wood that you can actually cut up in the sawmill, and uh, that's that's where you get your dimensional lumber, two by fours, two by sixes, two by twelves. Bigger bigger stuff like that comes from saw timber. Saw timber would also be what you would what you would call uh, a ply log would, would be technically be saw timber, even though you're not cutting it up, you're peeling it out. And for, for hardwood, you're really looking at, at pulpwood, um, cross ties, which would be, you know, railroad ties or uh, lower grade saw timber and then higher grade stuff that would go to specialty products. So when, and we know that uh, with hardwoods, most of that goes towards pallets, right? Where, where, what type of uh, yeah. class is that? In our out? area, that is, yeah, in our, in our area, that is, that is the primary use for uh, for hardwood logs would be pallets and mats. They take for pallets and mats. It doesn't matter what species it is, just about um, as long as it's straight and it doesn't have any rotten parts on it, uh, they can use it for that for that. Um, product but they don't you know it's not worth as much as say uh, a white oak that they're going to cut up and use for whiskey barrels jr you mentioned the extended shutdown at the mill there what uh what what are they bringing in well they are uh they're bringing in some new product lines that they have to uh retool and and um kind of gear up for so that they can run them properly and uh in long term that's going to be a, it's going to be good for us but it, you know here in the the next six months or so it's going to kind of set the pulpwood market on its on its head and that is i mean that's all dealing with pulpwood yes that's the, that's the all products with pine pulpwood. right what about the uh what about the higher classes you know poles and things of that nature the higher class saw timber chip and saw those those products are they're still in pretty well pretty well in high demand the economy's still rolling we're still building houses even though i think that we're technically down on starts right now there's still demand for for lumber uh so they're going to be there's going to be demand for those those logs 
uh, it's going to get, get interesting on tracks that are purely higher and better products with very little or no pulp wood uh, because nobody's going to want to have to try and find a way to get rid of those pulp wood products. And if it gets really wet and people are uh, in a bad spot looking for wood to cut, uh, they're probably going to be willing to pay for it. But that'll be that'll be a lot dependent on the weather and you know five or six other things that we can't predict. <laughs> Jr. We I get a lot um, as I'm looking at smaller tracks uh, of land. Folks will say, you know, I've got X amount of 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 timber over there, and it's worth this. When it comes to smaller tracks, and you're going on trying to harvest timber, I realize you can't make blanket statements, but where do you see is that tipping point where the costs for a logger to to show up and do the work, what's that tipping point as far as acreage size to where it kind of doesn't even make sense for somebody? I, uh, I mean, three like, like you said, giant trees, but, you know, in general. Like you said, it's difficult to make uh, blanket statements, but, you know, if we're just speaking in, in real general terms for average product, you know, average wood, average logger, I would say – a 20 acre track is getting close to as small as you're going to find somebody to clear cut anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably going to have to be 40 plus acres for them to really seriously consider a thinning unless you have a neighbor that uh, has additional land that's similar in size and that they'll also kind of throw in on it with you. The more land you can put together, the more attractive it is. It, it is it's dependent on the production of the logger a lot and also quota and other things, but a logger is not going to want to move for one to three days worth of work. He really wants to move for at least a week, if not more than that. Um, so it'll depend on how many loads of wood he moves in a week, how big the timber is, how much is there, and and all that. If you're a smaller landowner and you do want to have your trees cut or, or thinned, it sounds like it'd be very beneficial <laughs> for you to look for neighboring landowners that were having work done so that hopefully – you can piggyback on that where they're not having to move all their equipment just to come to your place. Yeah, it'd be it, if you if you own smaller lots, you have ten acres or twenty acres or something like that, but you have other neighbors that are around you that have, you know, even if they're still smaller lots, if you can put together enough land and try to manage it together, then then you should be able to still manage it as if, you know the same way a bigger landowner would, uh, as long as everybody's on the same page and. You know, try to work together. Last time you were on, we talked about this a little bit, but I want to hit it on again. You mentioned you were talking about the wet winter that we may or may mm-hmm. not have. And, and you hear the term wet weather loggable, you know, wet weather logging thrown around a lot. But what can somebody who's looking for a piece of property look for to find that, to find a property that is going to be easy to log in really wet periods? Uh, you would probably be uh, be well advised to look for tracks that have probably numerous points of access or or, or long amount you know a large amount of road frontage that's not where, where there's not a large uh, topography difference between the road and the majority of the property. If you're you know if you don't have to build up a road to go into the property from the blacktop or or go downhill, probably equally as bad. You want to uh, probably stay away from wetlands. Of course, you also want to see if this matches up with your objectives. If your main objective is I want to, you know, 
a duck hunting track, then you don't need to be worried about wet, wet weather logging because that's not going to happen. You can look at soil types. Uh, sandy soil drains better, and it's going to hold up a lot longer in, uh, in long periods of rain, and it will recover a lot faster um, after it stops. Those, you know, road frontage access into the property and, um, and the soil types are, are really, you know, the, the make or break between whether you can cut it when it's wet or not. You know, for, from, a, from the logging standpoint, is it that their equipment, are they having problems with efficiency in their equipment or is it more about the trucks to be able to get in and get out? It's, it's kind of all of the above, you know, um, but the, the efficiency part, a lot of guys will push it even if they're not getting peak production, if they're getting production, then, uh, you know, they'd still like to do it, but, but getting trucks in and out is real, is a real, uh, concern. And then, you know, also you really, you really don't want to tear up the ground, uh, just trying to get logs to the deck. And it's, you know, on top of that, it's really hard on your roads. If they're not holding up under the weight with the wet, with, you know, with the water, they're, uh, then it's going to cost you a lot to get them fixed and get them back right. And they may, ne- may never be back right after you, you know, after you've torn them up. JR, we were looking at a track of land the other day that we've got listed with a very mixed stand in terms of products because it's older plantation, you know, some of it's pushing into the thirties and, and some of it even a little higher. So, you know, the comment was made as we rode around the, the hills and the bottoms and things like that, that, you know, down here we had pole quality material and up here we had piling quality material. I mean, can you elaborate on the difference between those and, and why merchandising? So knowing how to merchandise is so important. Poles is like kind of opening up a whole other second can of worms. Uh, when you're talking about different product classes, uh, poles and pilings are processed basically the same way uh the difference is for a pole you have to have without getting too deep in the weeds uh a fairly specific length to diameter ratio and that's about as easily as i can put it uh for pilings it's a little more flexible than that they still have to be straight because you have to run them through a peeler and uh they still have to have a, a a certain minimum size but their top diameter can be a lot bigger than a pole because they're used for completely different purposes. Poles, uh, you know, they're usually a lot longer and um, they're mostly made for holding up uh, utility lines and uh, pylons are usually more for structural stuff. So if they have a big fat wide top, that's not a big problem. But, uh, you know, if you're trying to stand up telephone poles and uh, they've got a 12 inch top at a hundred feet, that's kind of a big tree uh, and it's a little top heavy. So, they try to so it, they try to avoid stuff like that for that that use, uh, but pylons would typically be, you know, pr- price wise at the top end, if not a little higher than top end of what a normal saw timber would be, and pole, poles would be a little bit more than that. But potentially, you could make more money off of piling if you can get more of it into that higher price size sure. range. Sure. Yeah. If you're in a saw timber stand and you have a, the option to uh, to cut it for saw timber or pilings, and you're getting more money for pilings, so long as you're not uh, cutting a lot more waste off the tree, um, then you're definitely going to come out ahead to push more of those trees into into the piling category. 
Well, I was going to say sometimes, like even if it's a lower price per ton, but you can get more of the tree into that price range. Like if the the poles were priced higher than the piling, like you say, but the piling material you could get more of it into the piling. Oh yeah, yeah, I got, I got what you're saying. Yeah, it, yeah, it would definitely, uh, it definitely goes the other way if, if you, um, if you've got a lot of older stuff that won't make the class of poles for the size you have because of the diameter and, and you can get a lot more of them into that piling category even by sacrificing a few dollars you're gaining a lot more tonnage you know the 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 gross the gross amount will be a lot bigger the pile of money at the end is bigger same thing when you look <laughs> at it when you look at a, um, a transitional stand with that's got a lot of chip and saw and saw timber in it uh you know you might actually get better money by dropping down into chip and saw than uh pushing everything into log we hear that term like super pulp, you know, going for higher prices or equitable prices to chip and saw around here a lot. And, but they make more money because more of that tree goes into that product than it would have as chip and saw. So that's right. It equal to lower money. You still make more net income out of it. So my point in all of this is saying it's not always about the price per ton or the price per board foot. The specs are sometimes more important than the price per unit. And without somebody like you to help them negotiate that or understand that, they may lose money by selling at a higher price per ton and not realize it that they lost their money on the mer- in the merchandising. That's right. And even you know, even going a step further than that, if you're not, if you or someone you know you trust is not out there making sure that it gets separated right at the deck, then it doesn't matter what you have on paper. You know, if everything they pull up to the to the loader. Uh, goes in the pulpwood pile, you're going to lose. That's right. But if you got somebody going out there checking to make sure that it's getting sorted the way that the contract specifies, then you're going to come out ahead. What y'all are saying is really interesting because it's, I mean, it's kind of a analogous to, I don't know, if you look at a, you look at a cow when you break that down for the butcher shop. There's, there's only so much filet mignon on a cow. Yeah, it's the, it's the uh, highest price piece of meat, but there's a lot more that's there available to be ground up. And it's, it's kind of analogous to that. But what you're saying is, is if you've got to really make sure that this is being done correctly in the field, how does somebody who's inexperienced with this do that? Because, I mean, I wouldn't know if I were to be out in the field, I wouldn't be able to argue that one tree was better used for a different class like you could jr so how does a how does a landowner who's inexperienced with this accomplish this uh, the the really the only the only real thing you can do is is be there and nobody's got the time even somebody who does it for a living to sit there with them for every single tree that comes across the deck and gets put on a truck but what you can do is spend time with the guys and make sure you watch them quietly while they're doing their thing and not you know just just watch what they're doing, and uh, if it looks like they're putting chip and saw into the uh, saw timber pile, we don't say anything. If it looks like they're putting uh, saw timber in the pulpwood pile, we speak up. <laughs> you know that 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 process right there. It's um, it's really the the uh, the heartbeat of the whole operation. If uh, if he's not getting it done right, then you're not going to come out the way that you should. And um, it takes, you know, experienced eye, uh, one being on site 
and looking at it, but two, um, knowing what to look for and, and when to speak up and when to, when to sit back. Well, JR, thanks for giving us a, a little update on current timber prices and, uh, you know, helping, helping folks try to time things. Uh, if you could predict the weather, then we'll be in real good shape. We'll, uh, we'll bring you back on whenever <laughs> you get that figured out. But uh, if I could do that, then I wouldn't be doing this anymore. <laughs> if, uh, if folks are up in the West Central Alabama area, uh, what'd you say, maybe Tuscaloosa on down to probably Dallas County and, and over Birmingham. on to the Georgia line, Birmingham area, and they want to get in touch with you? Yep, that's pretty, pretty good. That's, uh, you can get me on my email address at uh, jrhavard at nationalland.com. That's H-A-V-A-R-D, not H-A-R-V-A-R-D. And uh, you can get me on my cell phone at 205-300-5007. Thanks again, John Ross. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, Clint, sounds like y'all had a, a good opening weekend of deer season. And I, I got to ask you, did you did y'all see any coyotes when you were out? I actually heard one yesterday when I was uh, trying to track a little cow horn for my son, uh, which would have been his first deer, but we no luck finding him yet. So we actually spent the evening listening for the coyotes to see if they found him. Well, I know that there's been a bunch of them on my property this year. seems like when I've got my bow in hand, they always skirt uh, just out of range. And, uh, you know, it's something that I want to become a a coyote hunter. Uh, I spend more time on my land during deer season than any other time of the year. Uh, But it just seems like it's always something that when I've tried it, I've been unsuccessful. um, And I just hadn't ever really got the confidence to – to get into it. And so I, I am definitely a, a beginning coyote hunter, uh, but it's an important part, uh, of managing, you know, you got to manage your predators. And so today we want to learn a little bit more about that. We're going to be talking with Byron South of Convergent Hunting Solution. He's been hunting coyotes for 45 some odd years and really is an expert on not only, you know, setting up, uh, for, for hunting purposes, but also coyote calling. And, uh, he's going to help get beginning coyote hunters like us started today. So Byron, welcome to hunting land, man. Tell us a little bit about convergent hunting solutions and tell me about your passion for coyote hunting. Cause I know I should be doing it, but I just hadn't <laughs> got, I just hadn't gotten that fired up about it yet to get out there and, and really be, be consistent. Well, you mentioned passion. I, I, and, and, and you had to throw in the, how many years I've been doing it. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, guys, I'm only 45 years old. I wish. No, I'm, I'm 55 years old. I, I've been doing this, uh, since I killed my first cat when I was about 10 years old. And sometimes I think, uh, what happened? Uh, I, I just a brief deal how I got into this deal. Uh, my uncle gave me a predator call back when I was 10. I was ha- having to drive the truck and they, him and my granddad were loading the truck with hay and I found that call. I started blowing on it and he told me, if you want that thing, keep it. I've never had any luck with it. Uh, and uh, so I thought, man, I've got a new coat call. i got to go see if I can get this thing to work. And I, I it had to have been dumb luck, but I, I talked to a cousin of mine that stayed with us summer to help us. Talked to him to slipping out of the house, which we weren't supposed to do at night. We slipped down the creek. I had a little 20-gauge shotgun. had no idea what I was doing. And I blew on that call three or four times. We turned the light on and shined. Blew it three or four more times. Turned the light on and shined. The third time we did that, there was a coyote standing there about 10 yards, and I shot and killed him, and it scared me to death. Like, what in the world have I done? You know, I was shaking like a leaf. And I, it took him and I both to drag that big coyote up there 
to the house and woke my granddad up and told him what we'd done. Thought we was going to get a whooping for doing it because we weren't supposed to be out of the house. Wasn't supposed to have his flashlight. But, uh, he was so proud of us and patting us on the back, killing that coyote. And that lit a passion in me. And I'd love to tell you right then, I started killing coyotes just left and right. But I didn't. I really struggled. I mean, uh, I thought, man, this is easy. And I kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. And maybe it was forever before I killed another coyote. But I saw it happen that first time. And so that lit that fire in me. So I thought, well, I've got to learn to get better at it. And that's what, one thing I've struggled to do over the last 45 years is, is to, to, to just, you know, advance my ability to kill coyotes, you know, every time I go. I wish I could tell you that I've done that. What I have found through the years is uh, the, you're going to develop some skills and some experience, and you're going to get better over time. But the biggest thing I've learned is we just do the basics. We just do the fundamentals. And for my advice to tell a guy, you know, uh, you know, is don't overthink this deal. This is not a tough thing to do, calling coyotes. And uh, basically, you've got to do all this stuff. If you're a good deer hunter, you've got a good start. You understand the wind. Uh, you've got to understand you've got to hunt where the deer are. So there's some scouting aspects to it. Uh, you can't get out. You know, a lot of guys buy a $700 call or whatever and think they can just uh, play it out the window of the truck and kill coyotes. And some people will. They'll have dumb luck like I did when I was 10 years old and killed that coyote. And it'll happen every now and then. But to up your odds, uh, there are a few things a guy can do to really up your odds. And the uh, first thing I tell a guy is confidence. You know, it's like anything. You, you don't want to go to that deer stand if you don't have confidence there's a big deer there. You're not going to sit there day in, day out. With, uh, without a certain amount of intel that that you're actually going to be successful. I mean, you're just going to quit. You're not going to you're not going to be on your game. You're going to be sitting there on your phone, you know, just kind of going through the motions. So, it, uh, what I try to tell a guy when he's getting started is, uh, you know, take it serious. Uh, you know, you got to do the fundamentals. You can't cheat that. You can't go in there with the wind wrong. You can't go slamming the doors, bouncing the truck in there talking you're gonna have to treat him like you would a big mature buck and uh a guy told me one time that made so much sense to me if you got out of the truck with the knowledge that if that coyote saw you heard you or smelled you he's gonna shoot you and kill you you're gonna get out of the truck a lot different you're gonna approach everything a lot better and that's what he's dealing with if he you know so you'll think, okay, when I pull up here, this coyote may kill me. I better sneak in. If he smells me or hears me or whatever, he can he can kill me. That's what he's dealing with, a life and death deal. It's not a game to him. So if you get that in your head, you'll approach your setups a whole lot different. Well, let's talk about setup a little bit. So you mentioned, you know, just like deer hunting, you got to be where the deer are first and foremost. This isn't a situation where it sounds like you can't just park a, a call uh, out in the middle of any old field and just expect that a coyote is going to hear that and, and come running in. So, you know, with deer hunting, for me, it's a lot of boots on the ground time. Uh, I've got to be spending time uh, looking for tracks, looking for sign, uh, and that's a constant. It's not something I can do before the season and then expect it's going to carry me through the season. Things change. So with coyotes, uh, do you, is it the same kind of deal or can you look more at terrain features um, and to, to find where is a likely area for a coyote? What do you do to, to scout? Sure. Uh, we, 
Coyotes are so prevalent. I mean, and you know, we're not hunting a particular coyote. We're hunting any old coyote, which is, I guess, one of the great things about coyote hunting, any coyote to do. Uh, so most of your, anywhere in the lower 48, I mean, uh, you're going to have, coyotes are going to be prevalent. I mean, all the way up to the city limits, you know, and inside the, even the city limits. So you look for places on your properties that you've got that would, a coyote, would feel comfortable in he's you know uh kind of like a bedding area for a buck and so i pretty much for my scouting i just assume there's gonna be a coyote there anyway because there probably is and uh he don't have to be a 12 point you know 116 spear he just he just has to be a coyote so i assume i just i'll kind of find you'll think about where would i be if i was a coyote i hope y'all can't hear that train but Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll forgive you, but, uh, no, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. And so, so, you know, when you're, when you're, once you've got your area that you feel confident in, um, talk a little bit about, so with, with a deer, when you're calling a deer, that deer is almost, if we're talking about a mature buck, that deer is almost always going to try to circle you, get downwind of you, uh, sure. before they come in to, you know, you being, uh, come right in. With a coyote, um, is it the same thing, or, or are they going to come in not necessarily directly downwind? Uh, you know, do they always circle downwind? Is that how do you combat uh, no. that? And I'm glad you said almost. Al- almost always, I tell people a coyote. You can never say always or never. I mean, because they'll fool you almost every time. There's certain, there's things that we do that uh, that can help to keep them from going downwind, and if they do go downwind. I mean, they're they're almost always going to go downwind, but there's things you can do that make them go downwind five foot of that call or 500 yards from that call. There's things that we do to try to keep that coat coming in more of a direct route. If he does go downwind, he does so on our terms up close so we can deal with him and take him. So, uh, you know, when you're approaching your setups, there's a, a couple of key tips I'll tell you. A guy starting out with electronic call, you can leave that call constantly playing. A lot of guys I used to hear when I was growing up, well, a coyote can't scream for 15 minutes, or a, a, a dying rabbit can't scream for 15 minutes. You and I may know that, but a coyote doesn't. <laughs> and so he's not as smart as what a lot of people give him credit for. We leave that call playing constant. And I, I, I give you a scenario or, or a, a kind of an example. Let's say if you're bowling a hand call, uh, the old school, when I first started hunting coyotes, I mean, the package would always say, blow it for 60 seconds and wait th- two minutes blow it for another 60 seconds and wait another minute, you know, kind of off and on calling. And that got, you know, that gets a whole lot of coyotes downwind of you. And that may work out in Montana or somewhere where you can see a long ways. And if that coyote goes downwind of you, you can still take him. And, you know, more tight cover. Uh, if that cat goes downwind of you 30 yards, a lot of times you won't see him. So what I realize is when you start to blow that call, whether you turn an electronic game call on or blowing a hand call, that coyote's going to make the decision to either come or not. So we're going to assume he's coming. Say that call's been going for 60 seconds and it stops. That coyote's coming. That's the only thing. He's not close enough. He can hear it or see it or smell it. So, But the sound stopped. That was the only thing he was able to hone in on was the sound. So now you've got his wheels turning. Uh-oh. Did another coyote get that rabbit? Did it die? Did it move? Did it whatever? So you're getting these wheels turning. He knows instinctually that he can get downwind of it and figure it out before he commits to come in. So he's going to immediately go to that downwind side. 
So you let the minute or two uh, expire and you start blowing the call again. Well, you may pick him up again and get him headed back toward that sound. And then you stop. What's he going to do? He's going to veer it again to that downwind side. So we found by constantly playing that sound and giving him something to hone in on, he's going to come in a more direct route to that sound. And uh, so you're going to get a whole lot fewer coyotes downwind of you. Now, he's only going to get to a point where he should be able, when he thinks he should be able to see that rabbit, if he doesn't see something, he's going a lot of times he's going to veer downwind. So that's where that decoy on top of our bullet call uh, really comes in handy. So if he gets to a point where he sees it or and he hears it, a lot of times he'll commit and come on in. And he's going to veer sometimes to that downwind side, but he's going to do so, you know, five yards from the call. And you own him at that point. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, constant- to kind of break that down and, and, and make that analogous to turkey hunting, which I do a lot of, is with turkeys, you know, it's, it's a little bit the opposite. You don't want to keep yakking sure. on the call because that tells them exactly where you are. And you're going against nature. You're trying to – uh, in nature, you know, you're trying to bring that hen, that gobbler's bringing the hen to him. You're trying to reverse that. So you kind of want to be a little subdued and, and make that gobbler think a little bit, uh, to come find you. But one of the things that sure. always works is if you don't have a visual aid, like a decoy, you try to position yourself around some kind of obstacle, a bend in the road, um, sure. something that makes that turkey close the distance so that he can get a visual on that thing that's making noise over there so it's funny how all animals you know they'll use multiple forms of their senses and that's what i'm hearing from you about coyotes so using that uh decoy does that take their um sense of vision off of you enough that you can move and do things or do you still need to really focus on being totally hidden totally camouflaged that type of thing Yes and no. I mean, I've seen it where they uh, just get so totally fixed on it. I mean, they're just hard charging. They come all the way to the call, and you can, a guy could be doing jumping jacks out there, and he wouldn't see, I mean, because he's so totally focused. And then the next coyote comes in, you know, cautiously. So they're, they're individuals. Uh, I mean, it's not a cookie-cutter one way of doing it, but I can tell you this, you will, you will kill a lot more coyotes, you know, what I'm well, I'm telling you, and your analogy with the, the turkey, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, guys have been hunting turkeys or even ducks. I mean, Phil Robertson always used to say, do not, you never call a duck that's coming to you. Mm-hmm. Well, with a coyote, you always want to be calling. He, uh, and that's so, you know, guys that hunt multiple species and maybe may a good turkey hunter, deer hunter, and duck hunter, I mean, you're trained to think less is more. You know, you just want to call sparingly just enough to get him you know, up there where you can kill him. Well, a coyote, he's, you're working with a mind that's constantly wary and, and, uh, you know, uh, very, very spooky. So you've got to try to close his mind off and get him focused on, on, on that call. And then, and then that decoy. So, uh, it's, it's a lot different. And that's where I think a lot of guys, uh, that hunt other species struggle, you know, they may be a great duck hunter, you know, and they think, well, I've got to, you know, uh, be sparingly on that call those guys are getting a whole lot of coats downwind of them they're not seeing and so i mean it's kind of the flip side with coats and bobcats the same way i mean i know this shows about calling coats but there's a lot of guys uh you know if you'll get that decoy a lot of those cats will approach the call a little different 
little slower, a little more methodically, and they hunt more with their eyes than they do their their ears and nose. So, I mean, that decoy and that constant sound, you've got to keep a, a cat's mind busy, or they'll just—they're not a really bright animal. A lot of people—they're—they're. <laughs> they're, you've got to occupy his mind, or he'll just quit a call. You uh, and and just you know going about his business doing something else. I've seen them do it multiple times with that decoy. And you'll be, I just tell you, you'll be more successful leaving that call playing constant and that decoy playing constant. Uh, and your, 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 your goal is to get that coat there as fast as you can, because the more time you jack with him, the higher likelihood he's going to beat you. He's going to get wary and suspicious. You want to get, you want to get him there as quickly as you can and kill him. And when that coat gets there, he's not going to tarry. You've got to be ready. And we, I have guys all the time. I'll ask guys when we start a stand, are you, are you ready? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. I'll turn the call on. They go, oh, man, that happened fast. He was there in 30 seconds. I wasn't ready. Dude, man, you got to be ready. When you turn that call on, this is the thing that a lot of guys don't understand. And for it just it's, it's surprising to me. When you blow that call, everything out there is looking at you. So you mentioned camouflage. They're looking in your general direction, even if you're using an electronic game call that's off. We use shooting sticks. We'll set on the ground you know, like a turkey hunter and, and put a rifle up on shooting sticks. And, uh, I make sure everybody's ready and still somewhere you can sit and be still for, you know, next 10 or 15 minutes. And we turn that call on. I tell guys, I'll turn the call on and I'll start seeing them out of my, out of my you know, peripheral vision moving around. I'm thinking, dude, you gotta be still, you know, everything out there is looking right here. So, so, uh, so, you, camouflage is important. We try not to get anything in front of us. We try to back up against some stuff that'll break our outline up. Turn that call on. Get ready. Be still. Turn that call on, and then get ready. And just use your eyes more than your head. Kind of roll your eyes around looking. And we try to set up with a wind interface, you know. But I always try to like, you know, if I can, the ideal situation get where you can kind of see that downwind side because if you get one that's real leery, you know, he's going to gravitate or, or veer to that that downwind side. So. Your setups, I mean, uh, move in there, you know, kind of have an idea. I'll give you an example. Last night, I mean, I had a good friend coming over, and we were going to, uh, we had a south wind. And so I lined up everything I could, uh, you know, get into with a south wind without getting, you know, the coat, being aware that I'm there. And so your setups are very important. You've got to be able to see that coat when he approaches. And I know in the east, I'm I'm in East Texas and it's just like, you know, I was in Mississippi or Georgia or anywhere else. It's, you know, piney woods, a lot of big oak bottoms and stuff like that. So we don't, you know, vantage point is a, is a big thing for us. We've got to set these hay meadows and stuff and, uh, uh, you, you can't kill him if you can't see him. So you're trying to get that coyote into an opening or an edge where you can shoot him. So always keep those in mind when you're setting up. And uh, the wind is the most paramount thing. We, we, uh, I tell guys, man, you, it's you're almost never going to kill a coyote that's downwind of you. I mean, he's going to smell you almost all the time. So, uh, so these, the wind does funny things. These setups. I mean, I know we're we're heading into December, where most of most of the folks we hear about that are trying to to get started with this are just trying to fill some idle time at the at the deer camp this winter. Sure. These setup, the setups you mentioned. I mean, they're they're pretty universal in year round, or have they does that change with the season? It's it, that's constant. It's constant. We always uh, I play the wind. I try to get to a place where I can get him in an open opening area 
or, you know, at least some thin, you know, like some big wooded timbers good where you can see a long ways down through there. So, uh, but yeah, what that's about, a constant. What about which sounds? I mean, do you, do you notice more success using prey sounds versus coyote sounds? Absolutely. Uh, and you know, that's a, uh, a big thing with a lot of guys nowadays is using the coyote vocals and that's, you know, kind of going the way that the elk bugling did back in the seventies and eighties, you know, that was a big thing. And it was real romantic to bugle in a big old bull elk or rattle in a big white tailed deer or whatever. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's exciting to, to howl in a coyote, but you know, I, I always cast the widest net first, which is your prey sounds. And, uh, that has the most appeal to the most amount of ears. And say like, you know, you've seen a litter of puppies. I mean, uh, in a litter of, of dog, you know, puppies, there'll be some real aggressive pups in there. There'll be some passive pups and everything in between. So, uh, the more aggressive type coyotes will respond better to howls than maybe the more passive ones. So, but they all like to eat rabbits. And so <laughs> I almost always, you know, they're not, no self-respecting coyotes scared of a rabbit. So you that's just the, it has the most appeal. So I, I rarely uh, start with a howl, uh, and, you know, that's a big thing a lot of guys preach. It's always a howl. Yeah, well, um, you'll kill more coyotes if you don't. I've, I've, I Believe me, I've tried it all, and I've howled in my share of coyotes, and I still love to howl coyotes. There's particular times of the year that I will, you know, uh, use howls almost exclusively, but that's mostly in the spring and summer. And I have a whole lot of intel. I know where the coyotes are. I know where they're denning. I know where they're whelping their pups. And so uh, that's a more advanced tactic. And, uh, uh, you know, at my age, uh, I'm still about numbers and you'll kill a lot more coats. Just stay into your price sounds. I, I haven't played a how, uh, this fall and probably won't, uh, and neither had a need to, and I've killed as many or more coats than most people I know. So, uh, and I, I use basically, even though our sound library, we have over 50 sounds in our sound library. I basically use about four or five sounds, and they work. Uh, uh, our sounds that we record for our system, I've recorded them myself, and they're high, they have a whole lot of emotional content. They're crystal clear, and, uh, man, they just work. Uh, so I, to answer that question, uh, if you'll stick with the prey sounds, you'll kill more coyotes. I know a lot of your stories that you've referenced are, are nighttime hunts. For the guys that want to try this, you know, middle of the day or that, windy afternoon they don't think it's going to be a good good deer hunt afternoon is there any differences or advice you have on a nighttime setup versus daytime i you know I, i'm I, I do a lot of night hunting and i grew up here in texas and uh back in the you know 70s and 80s i mean that's when most people just assume that's a, when you did it is at night but i gravitated more to the daytime i would rather hunt in the daytime than i had the nighttime um, they're not gonna, you know, you, they're not gonna be as active during the day, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you know where that coyote's at, I, I tell guys all the time, if you, if you're on a property, you're deer hunting a, a deer lease or a hunting club where you're at and you hear coyotes howl in the evenings, that's probably where that coyote's at. And so you can move in there during the day. I mean, that's where he's spending the day. He don't get up and go half a mile over somewhere else and how when when you hear them how that's probably where that cat was all day so you can use that intel and get in close during the daytime and midday is a great time to call cats because a lot of people are at work they're at camp and the cats know that they'll pattern you just like a white-tailed deer 
if you've got some good intel like that where you can move in close to them, you'll have a, a lot of success in the daytime. And I used to tell guys all the time, <clears throat> if God wanted you to hunt at night, he'd give you night vision. And we, I, <laughs> I, 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 and I'm running on teams right now. I stayed out to four o'clock this morning and we're, we're doing a lot of thermal hunts and stuff now and filming it with the, 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 the thermal. And it's really, really cool. And we get Bible a lot more at night because they can't see you as well. And they're more active. <clears throat> but they do not disappear during the daytime. There's just as many coats available to you in the daytime as there is in the nighttime. And for a guy starting out, don't go buy five or ten thousand dollars worth of thermal, uh, thinking that you need it to kill coyotes. You can kill a lot of coyotes in the daytime. Um, so you just gotta, you know, play the basics, uh, keep it simple, and uh, and take it serious. You know, I, I see a lot of guys that just kind of do it as an afterthought. And they just they just kind of apply that mentality to it. Oh, it's just something to do to you know kill the time. Before, you know, while I can go kill my big deer. Well, I think well, man, I'm just the opposite. I try to get my deer hunting out of the way, and I like killing big deer. Don't get me wrong, I'm after a big deer now, but uh, I try to get him killed quick as I can, so I can go back to my priority is the coyotes. And so if a guy will put that kind of priority on, look, this is not just something I'm gonna do because I'm bored go out there halfway doing it, you know, you're going to be halfway successful or probably not successful at all. So you've got to kind of have the mentality that I'm going to put as much importance and thought into what I'm about to do is call that coat because you've got one shot at it. Once you call that coat in and you screw it up, guess what? He's going to be hard to kill the next time. <laughs> so so if, if you, Byron, you're talking about, uh, you know, you're talking about what to expect and, and, you know, you get out what you put in, but Let's talk about expectations a little bit. If a guy's just getting into this, I mean, is this something where, what do you feel like a beginner? Somebody who's never done this before, uh, should they expect to kill a, kill a coyote pretty quickly right out of the gate? Uh, do you kill them every hunt? Uh, what, what's, what's some realistic expectations? Uh, you know, I used to get this all the time, a funny story. I like stories, but I was standing at a predator hunting function out West. A guy come up, had one of my videos and he goes, Oh, Mr. South. He said, you're all so awesome. He said, I've watched all your videos. He said, you, you kill a coyote on every stand. And, uh, kind of loud. There was a good friend of mine sitting there with me. He just started checking and laughing. And now every time he sees me, he goes, Oh, Mr. South, you kill a coyote on every stand. And that's what it appears to like to people that watch videos or TV shows that, you know, we just don't make videos and TV shows of unsuccessful hunts, you know, usually. So uh, realistic realistic expectations are very important. I mean, we got our butts handed to us last night uh, with the coyotes. I mean, the wind was just screwy. Uh, doing stuff we shouldn't – we should have just called it off earlier, but we were had some goals that we were trying to reach. And, and uh, so, I mean, here's a guy with 45 years' experience in, in uh, uh I mean, they beat me last night. We had, uh, we killed a couple of cows, but we, we were really struggling. So a guy just starting out, uh, best advice I can tell you is don't get frustrated. Uh, you're not, I don't care how good you are. You're not going to kill a coyote every time, but you know, if you'll put into it the same amount of effort you would to, uh, you know, killing a deer, you're going to be way more successful. And, but just don't get frustrated. You kill a deer every time you go. Uh, the answer that's obviously no. I mean, uh, there's going to be good days and bad days. So, uh, just don't get frustrated. There's a lot of turnover because a lot of guys think that it's an easy deal and they're just going to kill a coyote every time. It's just not going to happen. So, uh, I, I'm thankful that it's not. It's a challenge to me 
to try to get better at it. And uh, and a, a guy starting out, uh, don't be intimidated to think that it, it's because it's. I, I tell you this, it's, it's not that difficult. It is not that easy either. But if you will practice the fundamentals, the basics, do them well, and hone those and get better at them, you'll be a better coyote hunter. But have realistic expectations from the get-go. You're probably not going to step out there and start killing a bunch right off the bat. And if you do, you're the exception, not the rule. And I hope you do. But uh, at some point, those coyotes are going to humble you. (laughs) Well, Byron, uh, um, one of the questions I see a lot, and, you know, just between you and me, the real, the real reason we're doing this show is just so I can justify another gun purchase. But one of the <laughs> questions that I see a lot is people wanting to know what's the best coyote gun. And, you know, I mean, I, I hope, I hope that the answer is take your deer rifle out there and start there, you know, and if you like it, then, then you think about upgrading. But, but if we are in that moment where we're ready, you know, we're ready to buy a dedicated gun, uh, for coyotes i see a lot of guys using shotguns i see a lot of guys using you know uh modern sporting rifles as we're you know supposed to call them these days ar platforms what do you like the best sure i use an ar-15 and i came to that kicking and screaming i'm kind of old school you know uh and uh actually i was guiding a hunter and his son and i called in uh had a bobcat coming in real slow just coming over some terraces down the edge of a field and about the time the, the bobcat got up there where he could shoot, two coyotes came running into the call. They treed the bobcat. The kids started shooting the coyotes, and he had them kind of spinning around there and uh, trying to finish them off. The cat's up in the tree, and I started shooting. I was running a bolt gun. And uh, every time I would shoot, the limb would break, and the cat would fall. And it, I mean, it's it just a, a complete comical rodeo going on. And I run my gun dry, still didn't kill the cat. And a uh, cat finally just bailed out with us standing there with no shells in her guns. Cat just kind of looked at us and bailed out and took off. I thought, well, I've got to go get me something a little more firepower. And I go to a guy I knew real well at a pawn shop in a local store and a gun store. And uh, he told me, he had him in AR. And I thought, man, I didn't even know where to grab that thing. It looked so evil. And uh, <laughs> so I, anyway, I took it anyway. I thought, well, I'm going to try that. I found out, you know, the, highly accurate extremely dependable had multiple you know build you know the, the semi-automatic obviously so I, I i could handle multiple coyotes coming in at one time well very little movement i mean i you don't have to run the bolt or anything you just go from one to the next and just you know semi-automatic and I, so it finally occurred to me man this is ideal for what i do and then the neat thing about an ar-15 i call it the mr potato head of guns you can configure that gun to, for any application you want, whether it's long range, short range, you know, close quarter stuff, whatever. It's, it's, you can, you know, it's modular. And so I set out then to, oh, I'm going to build a perfect AR 15. And I actually helped Remington develop their, their uh, AR 15 line of AR 15s. They did a, actually a Byron South signature edition rifle. And what I did, my, uh, my, what I wanted to build was the lightest, most accurate rifle I could, I could get because we do multiple stands. We're carrying a rifle all day, every day, you know, do t- 10 or 15 stands. So I don't need a rifle. And when I, I just hear a funny story, I told Remington, I said, well, bring me all your Predator rifles. So they come in the room and they've got all these varmint rifles. Well, a varmint is a four pound rat. A coyote or a Predator is a, you know, 20 to 50 pound 
meat eater. That's two different animals. And so a varmint rifle is a big, heavy bolt action rifle that's meant for shooting prey dogs at distance. You know, a, a predator rifle in my mind is something that's light, compact, uh, gives you the ability to multiple shots. And so you ask me what I use, AR-15s are so prevalent now and they get such a bad rap in the press, but, uh, Man, I can load that gun. I'm not carrying shells in my pocket. I've got, you know, I usually use a 20-round magazine. Uh, Extremely accurate, extremely reliable. And I can build it, you know, to my parameters, you know, light, short, and handy. And, then, of course, we're shooting suppressors now, which you don't have to have. But I would encourage you to because there's there's so much easier on your ears. But uh, that's the ideal rifle. Now, Am I telling you to go out and buy an AR-15? No. If you've got a, a, a deer rifle, uh, that's perfect uh, to get started. And uh, uh, you start getting better at it and want to dedicate more time to it. And you're calling in multiples, have you know, a double or a triple coming in. An AR-15 is something you might consider. But shotguns, uh, my son, uh, he almost will not hunt with a rifle. He loves to get them close, and he uses a shotgun almost exclusively for his coyote hunting, and that's his deal. I mean, he's just chip off the old block. We like them close, and so his game is his challenge is to get them within shotgun range. And uh, we use twelve gauges and uh, the the tungsten nickel and iron type, you know, heavy shot type stuff. Tease is phenomenal, uh, but be aware. I mean, there's a lot of press stuff out there that you can kill them at seventy five yards. Do not do that. I mean, that's uh, need to get them coyotes in. You're shooting little bitty balls, you know, and they run out of juice pretty quick after about 50. You're killing, you know, you're, you, you want to dispatch them, you know, humanely. So I'm, I'm telling you, you really still need to get those coyotes under 50 with a, even with a shotgun. But man, that's, that's a lot of fun. So, uh, your duck gun, your turkey gun, your deer rifle, they're ideal for getting a guy started. Don't, don't not go coyote hunting because you don't have a coyote gun. Now, uh, don't tell your wife I said that. I mean, you, right. if you yeah, want to go buy an AR-15, <laughs> tell her. <laughs> so, don't we're going to stop the recording part, about uh, about five minutes ago. <laughs> we're going to stop the recording there. But, uh, but uh, the AR-15s are neat. Uh, they have a lot of applications. I mean, uh, they make great home defense guns, great truck guns to have with you on a ranch, you know, riding around or on your deal to have handy, you know. So uh, I think everybody should have one. But well, – uh, if you don't take your deer rifle. Well, Byron, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, one thing there and I want to track you back. We were talking about setups a little bit earlier in the show and you're talking about having a lightweight rifle because you may be doing, uh, 10 or 15 sets in a night. How long are you staying there? So you're calling these coyotes either with a mouth call or a hand call or most, uh, most likely an electronic call for the reasons you mentioned earlier. Well, how long do we need to wait? One of one of my biggest struggles with Turkey is, you know, I get that bird, I'm calling or I'll do a blind set. You know, I don't hear a bird gobble and I'm, I'm calling and, sure. and, uh, and I never know when to get up, you know, uh, it, it's like, all right, I hadn't seen a turkey and been calling for 20 minutes. It seems like, and it's happened to me more often than not. I stand up and as I'm walking out, uh, you know, <laughs> where I was, there's a turkey, you know, 150 yards away and he was working his way my way or I'll go to a new area and I hear him gobble back from where I was. He was coming to me the whole time and I just didn't know. Is there any indication that a coyote's coming and how long do you want to give them before you make a new set? Well, first off, I mean, uh, uh, you know, a, a, 
there, there are a lot of similarities in calling coyotes and, and calling turkeys, but there's some, you know, things that'll kind of get you in trouble. Uh, you can sit there, you know, 30 minutes or an hour and eventually maybe call in a coyote, but I've done the math on it. I've done the numbers and we've kept uh, really good records in the past about how quick it takes, you know, when, when are we killing most of our coyotes? And most of the, our coyotes we're killing in the first five minutes. I mean, a large portion, I would say 85% of them. Wow. Uh, and you can do 30 minute stands and you're it's still going to, you're going to kill 85% of your coyotes in the first five minutes. So what that tells me is I'm not a gambling man, but if I was a gambling man and I was sitting at a table in Las Vegas and I knew 85% odds i'm going to do good on the first five minutes it's going to be hard for me to set there after that now i'll go ahead and i've spent the time to get to that location and i don't want to give up too quick and i'll i'll usually stay about 15 minutes on set and uh and then i'm gonna get up and move because i know my percentages of being able to call a coyote have drastically been reduced after that period a coyote can run like 40 miles an hour when he's really trying almost 40 miles an hour so if he's coming he's got He's going to be there pretty quick. And when you move sets, how far do you typically move? That's, you know, it, it depends a lot in the, uh, on the terrain. Um, I, I'll tell you this. If, if if you move 200 yards, you're calling 200 yards further than you was before. Now, that's in terrain that's open and everything's constant. You know, if, if I'm calling, you know, bottoms and stuff, I, for instance, last night we came to a T in the road. And uh, we could go either. We we decided, well, we just parked in a T. We went to the right. We were calling off one side of a ridge. And then we walked right back to the truck, passed it, went to the other side of the T and called the other. We weren't 200 yards apart from each other. And we've done that stand several times and killed cows on both stands. Unfortunately, last night it didn't happen. But uh, so, I mean, sometimes 200 yards is plenty to move. And uh, the general rule out west is a mile. But those guys have, you know, huge you know, uh, national forest to hunt and public land and stuff. And you can do that. And the terrain is more conducive to moving those long distances in the Eastern part of the United States. Uh, it can be as little as a hundred yards. Uh, but you, you know, I try to keep everything in front of me. So I try to call into a place and work my way in that way. I'm calling the fresh ears in front of me, not behind me. You know, I don't want to go, uh, you know, in, in East Texas where I'm at, if I move, if I call a spot and I have to say, okay, everybody says you got to move a mile. Well, I'm going to drive past a bunch of cats that didn't hear me. Now they're behind me. And so you don't want that. So there's a lot of common sense, you know, on how far to move. You just have to, you know, make that judgment, you know, what's the terrain like, um, you know, but uh, still 15 minutes. I mean, if he, if he's not there, he's either figured you out or he ain't coming. More than likely. And, that's not to say it, you can't sit there for an hour and finally call one that kind of wandered in that here shot of you. But in the daytime, a lot of times they're not active. They're not up and moving. So they're probably not going to move into earshot during the day, you know, in the east. So 15 minutes, get up they, and move. Did they give you any indicators? I mean, any many times of, of they're on the hook and they're coming? I mean, are you listening out for any noises or do you expect it to be quiet? Yes. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of cattle here, and I, a lot of people despise having cattle on the set, you know, but I like it because you've got a lot of eyes and ears, and they're standing up, and they're seeing stuff that you can't see. So I'm always watching the cattle. Well, if they rubberneck, you know, that gives me, uh-oh, there's something coming. They just saw something, and you got, you know, 10 or 
30 or 40 cows out there and they all turn and look, you know, something's coming. Uh, we listen, you know, especially in the woods, we listen for, uh, blue jays, mockingbirds and stuff. They really fuss a lot. If something's coming, uh, a lot of times that's an indicator that a cat's coming because they cannot stand a cat. Um, we, we watch everything and that's a, again, paying attention to the details. That's something you kind of develop over time, but I can, you know, big tip is, you know, pay attention to what's going on. I mean, if you see some deer spook out of a place, well, you might just call the coyote through there. If you, uh, you hear some deer blowing, you know, uh, maybe there's a coyote coming. Um, there, there's a lot of indicators in, and that goes, you know, to your woodsmanship skills, just pay attention to what's going on out there. And a lot of times it'll indicate that a coyote's coming. Birds flushing, you know, see that a lot of times out West, um, they, you know, we're watching those ravens and stuff out in that sagebrush. I mean, uh, you know, cat was not very tall and they can come in that sagebrush. You think you can see them for a mile coming. And a lot of times you can't, but you'll see those ravens kind of ducking at those cats. And, uh, there's almost always a cat when you see a raven can start ducking, uh, crows here in the East are, will indicate to you a lot of times that cats coming. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of indicators to you know really be paying attention to. Well, Byron, it's been good, man. There's been a lot learned here today for me, for sure. Uh, I'm excited because it sounds a lot like turkey hunting, but uh, it also sounds like I need to you know learn some new tactics and and that kind of thing. The other thing I like is that uh, I'm an okay mouth caller for turkeys, uh, but I'm not great. And one of the challenges always is if you want to make good sounds, you're using a hand call. Um, you got to put that thing down when the turkey gets in close. And I really liked that what you were saying about using a, uh, electronic call and being able to just kind of let it go and have it blink <laughs> constantly while you're sitting there on the ready with the gun. What's new with Convergent? You know, I know you guys have got a, a really cool looking, uh, new electronic game call that has not only the, the call, but the, the decoy in it. So tell us a little bit about the new products you guys that got out, uh, coming up. Uh, the rest of this year. And additionally, I want you to fill us in on why we would choose a, uh, a hand call over a, over a electronic call, or is it really just something you want to have both of? Sure. Well, I'll just kind of start. I mean, we have a pretty simple product line, uh, that, you know, I say it's simple, uh, but effective. I mean, you don't have to have a whole lot. There's a lot of game calls out there that have more bells and whistles than, I, than we have, but, uh, they're just not really usable in the woods. I mean, uh, hand calls, uh, date back to, you know, Murray Burnham was a dear friend of mine. He was developed some of the first hand calls that were commercially available. And, uh, uh, through the years, I mean, there's only so much you can do with a hand call to make it better. And, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a good friend by the name of Kerry Carver, which is the premier, uh, custom call builder in the world. And in, in many people's opinion, not just mine, but Kerry and I've hunted together quite a bit and he helped us, uh, develop our hand calls our hand calls are cheap they don't require batteries uh and but they're a little different than what's available out there and uh, a lot of guys just you know have a the old style basic just a tube with a reed in it and we've taken it kind of the nth degree we wanted our calls to be easy to blow and not require a lot of air you know, one of the things I mentioned is constant calling with hand calls. It's hard to keep blowing on a hand call constantly because you'll run out of air, you'll get lightheaded, you'll pass out. So it was really important to us to be able to to develop a hand call that used less air. And uh, so you can stay more constant on the call. And that's what we've done. We've got 
our hand calls. They've got a bite call, which is a, you know, it can be used. It makes an awesome elk sound as well. Uh, it requires very little air. Uh, our our open read call is a more of an advanced call, but uh, it's not really hard to blow at all. It's it's kind of the do all call. You can do your coyote vocals on it uh, down to the you know little bitty squeaks and stuff and everything in between. It's more like a musical instrument with an exposure read, but it's very easy to learn to blow. Then we have the old school close read call that's just got to have the metal has the metal read in there and uh very easy to learn to blow and you're talking about you know practicing learning how to use your hand calls and and sound real good well the good thing about predator hunting is you're all you're doing is trying to mimic a a, uh, a dying rabbit which sounds horrible so you don't have to sound good you have to sound horrible and so the hand calls uh you can get up to speed really quick with the hand calls and and be really proficient now you're going to have that attention focused on you and you're not going to have the ability to constantly be blowing without passing out. So that's where our electronic calls come in. And it's really cool for, for a guy like me. I mean, uh, I can turn that call on and then I can focus on, on watching for a coat. So, uh, our next call up the line is the sidewinder. And that's kind of like a, uh, I mean, the coat's still going to be focused at you because you're, your call, the sidewinder is designed to be attached to a Picatinny rail on an AR-15 rifle. And so you've got your phone. It all runs off an app on your phone. So you've got all your sounds there. You just plug it to your phone. It's, it's right there, hands-free. Uh, we're sitting on shooting sticks, you know, with a rifle pointed in the direction we uh, assume the cat is going to be coming from. And I can just reach up and control the, everything about the call, the volume, the sound, everything right there. Uh, really handy call, you know, having your pack if you're deer hunting or, you know, out, you know, in sagebrush and stuff and doing a lot of walking so you don't have something else to carry. Uh, our kind of our, I guess our, our key product, uh, is the bullet. The bullet is, uh, has a range of, a uh, hundred yards or 300 feet. You can control that. Uh, it's, it's Bluetooth. So it connects Bluetooth, uh, to the Bluetooth on your phone. So it requires no cell service. Uh, you can use it on the moon. We use it on a lot of places that, you know, there's no cell service at all. So it connects directly to your phone. It has a legit, legitimately has a hundred yard range, but we rarely ever put that call out there about 30, 40 yards. Uh, and reason being is, uh, I mean, if you walk out there a hundred yards, a lot of times you're exposing yourself, uh, to that code and really all you want to accomplish is get that call away from you where the attention is off you. Because they'll get so focused. I mean, thirty or forty yards is more than enough. And uh, but that that call, we make a phone mount also that attaches your phone to your rifle, uh, to a pick rail or pick any rail on your rifle, which that ha- holds your phone hands free, which is really handy because I can just reach up there and touch my phone. It's it's really really neat. You can watch some videos on our website. It shows how to how to operate and stuff. We get a lot of coats. We we film uh caps coming to the call uh through the our camera on our phone and that pick rail or that phone mount holds that phone you know it's pointed the same way as your rifle so that's a really cool feature to our product but uh that's basically our whole product line uh and you know we're all constantly developing honing and, and working on new products and stuff but uh that gets a guy started from the hand calls you know you talk about you know less than 20 bucks up to the sidewinders a 149 dollar product and and don't think uh, when you look at that thing you'll think man this thing is tiny, 
you know, it's going to sound like a toy. It, it does not. It, it uh, puts out over a hundred decibels. And uh, the key to our, our electronic game calls is the fact that we use uh, uh, lithium ion batteries that put out 3.7 volts. That's twice over twice what a a double a, a, a battery puts out 1.5 volts. Whether you put one or 20 in it, it still puts out only 1.5 volts. Our system, our electronic calls start out with a 3.7 volt lithium ion battery, which that's over twice the, the, the horsepower. And so we're able to use a lot better speakers and which translates into way higher sound quality, which that sound quality is going to finish out more coats. It's going to get those leery coats in and finish them out all the way to the call. And so you're going to be a lot more successful, the, the better, higher sound quality you have. Couple that with the, the, our recordings uh we have the best in the industry and i've been doing this like you said earlier you know 45 years i have a lot oh, i of thought you said it was 25 sounds. i thought you said it was 25 <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I, yeah well uh i wish it was 25 i'd get started again but yeah. <laughs> uh it's uh uh you know the, the sound quality matters I mean, you're going to kill more coyotes. And today, with as many people I are out in the field, the coyotes are getting more educated. Uh, there's a lot of these tournaments and stuff going on. So, I mean, anything that can give you an edge is is, is obviously a, an advantage. So, I mean, the higher sound quality of our system. And so, like I said, you know, less than 20, 149, and then you're up around 300 with the, with the bullet. Uh, this was under 300. Yeah, but, that uh, bullet has uh, it. You know, it's got the decoy uh, included with yeah. it, right? So I, I really like that uh, that feature that you kind of got an all in one, and and it's sure you don't have to think about it too much. Just stake it down and yeah. set it set it to go, and you're you're hunting. Yep. Uh, if folks want to let it go, if folks want to check them out more, uh, what's your website and where do you sell retail? Uh, our website is convergenthunting.com. Uh, there's a ton of information about our whole product line there. There's lots of videos and stuff you can watch. You can order online uh, there. Uh, you, we're also in Bass Pro and Cabela's and lots of other, you know, chains, uh, Sportsman's Warehouse carries our products. So, I mean, if you want to find our products, they're not hard to find. Uh, I'll tell you this, regardless whether you buy it from Bass Pro or through our website or uh uh, our customer service is top notch. Uh, we make sure that you're taken care of. We have a lifetime warranty on the bullet and we have a, like a no fuss warranty on everything else we make. I mean, we want to make sure you're happy with our product and, uh, our customer service is second to none. Everybody that answers the phone there is very familiar with our product and they're, they're hunters. I mean, they're not just some kid we hired to answer the phone. They, they know our products front and back. Uh, so you can buy with confidence that, uh, I mean, our stuff is all made in the USA, which is a big thing nowadays. Uh, it's something we really strive to, to maintain in, uh, and customer service. We're coyote hunters first, uh, we're product manufacturers way down the line. I mean, we, we want to make sure everybody is taken care of just like their family. And that's what we tell people when they buy our products, they're part of the family. Now we will make sure you you're successful and uh, have a good product. So that's uh kind of in a nutshell what we do and where you can get our products well byron i've learned a lot today man i really have and and i feel like i'm you know really ready to go get out there and give it a shot some um 
I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm kind of fired up now. Like I said, I, I've been needing that, been needing that little kick in the pants to get out there and get after them. And I've, <laughs> I, I really do. I, you know, I think that confidence that you talk about is a big part of everything. It's a big part of your fishing. It's a big sure. part of any kind of hunting. Uh, you hunt harder, you're more aware, you're more, uh, you know, you just, you, you are more successful when you're confident in what you're doing. And I really feel like I'm way more confident now than I was before we started the show. So thanks for joining us, man. Hopefully we can talk to well, you good. again soon and, and cover some, uh, some hog calling. That's what I want to hear about next, but well, I'll tell you what, that's what we did. We, we called a, we called it in a big group last night and, uh, and a lone boar came from over 400 yards and that is something to see. Uh, either, either or, I mean, yeah, we had a group of about 30, 40 hogs coming at us. And, uh, and then that lone boar, I mean, you call a 250 pound boar up to you at 20 yards and shoot him that, you know, we'd have never seen that, that hog had we not been calling. So, Very uh, cool. it's been a bit of neat deal. Very cool. Well, Byron, have a good Thanksgiving, bud. We'll talk to you again soon. And, uh, we sure appreciate you joining us. Thanks, too. Thank you very much. Clint, that was a lot of fun, man. I, I, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed the most about what Byron was saying was it was good to hear that they only spend about 15 minutes in each spot. I could see this being a lot of fun for kids, you know, I mean, they, they have a hard time sitting still when they're younger. Uh, it'd be real easy to put, put a kid, put your electronic call out there, hit your smartphone, let them kind of control that, put them in your lap, sit there with some earmuffs on and, you know, sit there with your rifle and wait on a coyote and a doesn't happen in 10 or 15 minutes, move on, you know, hunt the, hunt the parts of your property that you're not going to hunt that, that evening or that next morning for, for deer. If you're worried about, worried about anything like that, seems, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm pumped up. I'm ready to go. I've been sitting with a six-year-old for three days in a row at three hours at a time. And I can tell you his eyes start to glaze over after about an hour. Yeah. If if there's not much going on to to keep his focus. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, uh, there's no substitute for, for a good, a good trapping program. I think if you really want to get serious about predators, you absolutely need to consider a trapping program, but Hey man, you know, there's a study out there that, that showed that, um, coyotes, I think it was, they, they put a, they put a, a camera on a den. And I think during fawning season, this one pair of coyotes was responsible for something like 30 fawn deaths. You figure, you know, if two coyotes can do that. Everyone, everyone you take out is going to have a difference on the overall you know, deer population, game population. It's not to say that, that another one won't fill its place, but if you're there and you got the time and you can, you're looking for something fun to do, it's, it's going to help in your management, overall management plan. Yeah. I mean, anything you can do to, you know, improve the quality of, of your herds, your flocks, you know, your turkey, deer, quail, rabbits. I mean, anything that's all added value, you know, on top of being fun and, and something else to, you know, get you and your family engaged outdoors. Yeah. And that's really what it's all about. You know, we talk a lot on here about investing in land, buying the right piece and growing big deer and uh, all these other aspects. But for me, what it's really all about is is quality time in the field, outdoors with people I care about making memories. And uh, this is just another way to do that. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it, man. I'm definitely going to do it. I, um, well, I guess that's going to about wrap it up, man. If uh, folks, if y'all want to uh, have us send you this podcast each week, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. We'll email it to you and please subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's iTunes or any podcatcher uh, really helps the show and, and we definitely appreciate it. So y'all be good. Have fun out there and uh, we will talk to you again next time. 
This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND.